I went to a conference last weekend, men's retreat, actually down in Lexington, South Carolina, and um, it was a great conference. And I knew Pastor Greg, as he always would, would ask me how it went because he was unfortunately not able to go some other commitments. He usually goes to it. And I knew he was going to ask me how it went when I got back, and I really couldn't come up with a good answer of how it, to explain how it went. But he did after service last Sunday. He stopped me out front in the foyer, and he said, so how was the conference? And I thought for a second, he said, well, I know it's how to summarize, but in, in regards to conferences, he said, how does this rate amongst other ones you've been to? I still didn't have a—that made it even harder, actually. And I said, well, Greg, I said, um, that's probably the best conference I've ever been to. And he said, really? Wow. I said, yeah, but God knew what I needed, and He knew when I needed it. The theme of that conference was on revival. I said, in fact, on the way back, I wrestled with God a little bit because I knew what I was going to teach this Sunday, or at least I thought I did. (laughs) But God impressed on my heart that that's what He wanted me to teach this Sunday was on revival. So this week's message, let me tell you up front, it's from last weekend. If you'll go to Calvary Chapel Lexington's website, all those teachings are online. There's five of them, some incredible teachers and some great teachings. I'm not going to just read you word for word what they gave, but we are going to teach on revival this week. And our scripture will be 2 Chronicles 7.14. It's only one verse, but I think you're going to see it's full enough. Um, you got plenty for us. So let's pray. Lord, thank you for this opportunity this morning, Lord, and just the encouragement of, of knowing that you impressed this on my heart, Lord, this topic, this message. And Lord, we pray this morning that as we open your word, Lord, and we're going to look at a lot of your word this morning, that, Lord, you would just speak into our hearts. Lord, you know what each one of us needs to hear today. You know where you're guiding and directing each one of us. And, Lord, we pray that as we dig into your word this morning, Lord, that you would feed us as we need to be fed. Give us the nourishment of your word, Lord, that we need as individuals to be effective in the ministry that you've called us to and in the the lives that you've given us to walk. And, Lord, we just lift this service up to you, Lord. We invite you into it as we just sang, Lord, come, Lord Jesus, come. Come into this service. Come into our hearts, Lord, and teach us this morning through your Spirit. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. On Wednesday, we celebrated the 500th anniversary of the Reformation. I'm sorry, Tuesday, the 31st. We frequently refer to that day as Reformation Day. It was on October 31st of 1517. It's a strange year to say. 1517 that Martin Luther nailed the 95 Thesis document to the Catholic Church of Wittenberg. Martin Luther, a former monk, had taken exception to the Catholic Church's practice of selling indulgences. Indulgences were a way of purchasing freedom from, or at least reducing, the punishment for sins. So the Protestant position, however, would come to incorporate doctrinal changes such as complete reliance on Scripture as a sole source of proper belief, which is where we get our term sola scriptura. And the belief that faith in Jesus and not good works is the only way to obtain God's pardon for sin, sola fide. Even though people were worshiping as they believed, the Protestant Reformation brought about a new set of problems. Catholicism refused to let go of its power, and they fought hard to keep their dominance over the people. Different Protestant denominations began to spring up, and they were in conflict with other Christian sects about the matter of how best to worship God. And we think that's all new to our day. People all throughout Europe began to engage in bloody conflicts over their religious disagreements. Catholics fought against the Protestants, and rulers fought against various Christian sects that did not affiliate with their particular beliefs. During this time, the exploration of the New World had begun, though, what we call North America today. 
Many of the Protestant groups desiring to escape the conflicts made their way to America, and this included groups such as the Puritans. Now, America has a, a history of spiritual revivals and spiritual awakenings, even as we speak about the, the Reformation. The first one being the Great Awakening, 1734 to 43. In December of 1734, the first revival of historic significance broke out in Northampton, Massachusetts, where a young Jonathan Edwards was pastor. After months of fruitless labor, he reported five or six people converted, one being a young woman. He wrote she had been one of the greatest company keepers in the whole town. He actually feared that her conversion would douse the flame, but quite the opposite took place. 300 souls converted in six months in a town of 1,100 people. 300 souls out of 1,100 in six months' time. The news spread like wildfire, and similar revivals broke out in over 100 towns. In Philadelphia in 1739, George Whitfield's dramatic preaching was like striking a match to the already underway awakening. The second great awakening, roughly 1800 to 1840, is the next one. In 1800, only 1 in 15 of America's population of 5.3 million belonged to an evangelical church. 1 in 15. Presbyterian minister James McGreedy presided over strange spiritual manifestations in Logan County, Kentucky. The resulting camp meeting revivals drew thousands from as far away as Ohio. The Reverend Gardner Spring reported that for the next 25 years, not a single month passed without news of a revival somewhere. In 1824, Charles Finney began a career that would eventually convert 500,000 to Christ. An unparalleled 100,000 were converted in Rochester, New York in 1831 alone, causing revival to spread to 1,500 towns. By 1850, the nation's population exploded fourfold to 23 million, but those connected to evangelical churches grew nearly tenfold from 7% to 13%. Then we have revivals such as the Businessmen's Revival of 1857 and 58, the Civil War Revival, the Urban Revivals, the revivals of 1905 to 1906. In that one, word of the Welsh Revival had spread to the Welsh settlers in Pennsylvania. In late 1904, and revival broke out there. Billy Sunday, who became a key figure about this time, preached to more than 100 million people with an estimated 1 million or more conversions. Imagine one out of a hundred people that you share the gospel with get saved. Then we had the post-World War II awakening. After World War II in 47 and 48, the Pentecostals experienced two strands of an awakening, one the latter rain revival and the other the healing revival. Large numbers of evangelicals also experienced revival, resulting in many conversions. It was at this time that the great generation of Christian leaders emerged. Bill Bright began Campus Crusade for Christ, many of you may be familiar with. In 1949, Billy Graham's distinguished career, which popularized evangelical Christianity for a new generation, exploded on the scene during his Los Angeles Crusade, which was sponsored by the Christian Businessmen's Committee. An estimated 180 million people attended Billy Graham's near 400 crusades and millions more viewed on television. College revivals started as early as 1946, but when the prayer-based Wheaton College Revival of 1950 achieved national publicity, it sparked other college revivals throughout America. The charismatic renewal and Jesus movement during the 1960s and 70s. The first strand was the charismatic renewal, which spread far beyond Pentecostal and holiness churches to college campuses, the Catholic churches, and mainline denominations. 
The second strand was the widely publicized Jesus movement, which emphasized turning from drugs, sex, and radical politics to taking the Bible at face value and finding Jesus Christ as personal Savior. If that sounds familiar to many of you, that's where Calvary Chapel is rooted, deep in that uh, Jesus movement. Then there were some other revivals, the mid-1990s revivals, the Promise Keeper revivals, and some others. But what is a spiritual revival, or we often hear it referred to as a spiritual awakening? Probably the best definition that I've seen is what was described by some bystanders when Jonathan Edwards Northampton, Massachusetts Church in 1734. Observers declared, It pleased God to display His free and sovereign mercy in the conversion of a great multitude of souls in a short space of time turning them from a formal, cold, and careless profession of Christianity to the lively exercise of every Christian grace and the powerful practice of our holy religion. In revival, there are certain characteristics that are always present. First of all, revival is a broad work. It changes lives. Not just one aspect of a person's life, but a person's entire life is transformed. People develop a great enthusiasm in their relationship with God and an excitement to be involved in His works. It's a broad revival in that it affects believers and unbelievers. Believers develop a renewed excitement, hence the term revival, and unbelievers come to a knowledge of Christ that they've never known. Revival is also broad in that it typically affects all age groups and people groups. It's not limited to a very narrow slice of individuals. Another characteristic of revival is it's evident. It's easily seen. Revivals are visible and apparent. Think of the day of Pentecost here. It's it's an obvious work of God. God's presence is easily discernible. In fact, I'd say it's impossible to deny God's presence in the midst of a revival. There'd be no other way to explain what's happening here other than to say God is at work. Another characteristic of revivals is mercy. Revivals are full of mercy. Revivals are a time of conviction, repentance, and prayers to which God responds with an outpouring of mercy. God's abundant mercy is poured out on the repentant masses during a time of revival. And the last characteristic is that revival is from God. Revival is a work of God. God uses men and women in ministry, no doubt, but the true work in a revival is a working of God. Only through His mercy, grace, and love can true restoration with one's Creator take place. Quoting G. Campbell Morgan, we cannot organize revival, but we can set ourselves to catch the wind from heaven when God chooses to blow upon His people once again. Revival can be of a personal nature. It can be regional. It can be national, or it can be worldwide. Can't limit it to a a geographic zone. Some of the ingredients that go into revival are what I want to talk about this morning. We want to look at what our role is in revival. In the Bible, we see some areas where, where men are certainly, revi- certainly involved any time a revival takes place, and we'll call these ingredients. This is where we're going to go to our Scripture, Second Chronicles 7.14. God says, If my people, who are called by my name, will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and heal their land. So the first ingredient that we pour into a revival is prayer. J. Edwin Orr stated, History is silent about revivals that did not begin with prayer. Think about that. History is silent about revivals that did not begin with prayer. There's nothing to record in revival if prayer didn't take place. Habakkuk prayed, 
In chapter 3, verse 2, Habakkuk prayed, O Lord, I have heard your speech and was afraid. O Lord, revive your work in the midst of the years. In the midst of the years, make it known. In wrath, remember mercy. And I believe that this should be our prayer today. I believe this should be a daily prayer for us. God, revive your work in the United States. And while it's greatly debated, it actually takes very little research to find that many of our founding fathers in this country were Christians. In fact, they attributed the successful creation of the United States to being a work of God. That without His hand could not have happened. Our Constitution was much influenced by the Bible and many other Christian authors. So to pray for God to revive His work in this nation, I think, is quite appropriate and necessary in today's time. The psalmist in Psalm 85 prayed, Will you not revive us again, that your people may rejoice in you? Show us your mercy, Lord, and grant us your salvation. But to look at prayer, I want to go to Acts chapter 10, if you want to turn there. Acts chapter 10, starting in verse 1. There was a certain man in Caesarea called Cornelius, a centurion of what was called the Italian regiment, a devout man and one who feared God with all his household, who gave alms generously to the people and prayed to God always. About the ninth hour of the day, he saw clearly in a vision an angel of God coming in and saying to him, Cornelius. And when he observed him, he was afraid and said, What is it, Lord? So he said to him, Your prayers and your alms have come up for a memorial before God. Now send men to Joppa and send for Simon, whose surname is Peter. He is lodging with Simon a tanner, whose house is by the sea. He will tell you what you must do. And when the angel who spoke to him had departed, Cornelius called two of his household servants and a devout soldier from among those who waited on him continually. So when he had explained all the things to them, he sent them to Joppa. So we understand here that a Gentile unbeliever has been reaching out to God in prayer. So God hears the prayers of those that seek him. Now I don't know where Cornelius learned to pray, but I doubt if it was in a YouTube video on how to pray to God. Maybe, just maybe, he'd been watching the Jewish believers that had already found Christ and had seen how they prayed. But let me tell you a secret. Even unbelievers have a desire in their hearts for God. Even unbelievers deep down in their heart, whether they know it or not, have a desire to meet their Creator. It's built into them. You could say it's standard feature in all models. God heard Cornelius' prayers. The angel said, Your prayers and your alms have come up for a memorial before God. So Cornelius has been praying and giving alms. He's been caring for the needs of those around him. God's been listening and watching, which is a, should serve as a reminder that God's watching and listening to everything we say and do. And God responds to Cornelius. How does God respond? He says, Send for Simon, whose surname is Peter. God frequently responds to our prayers with instructions. Not just answers, but instructions. One of the reasons I think that we often believe that God's not answering our prayers is when we get through praying, at least the talking part of it, we hang up the phone. We leave God on the other end going, well, you just asked for help, but then you hung up on me before I had a chance to say anything. God wants to respond. We need to listen. We, when we pour out a heartfelt prayer to God, we need to not hang up, but we need to lean in. We need to lean forward and say, God, what do you have to say to me now? We should be listening with earnest expectation and expecting a response. If we worship a God that loves us and hears our prayers, then we should be waiting for a response when we get through talking. Prayer to God should leave us with a great feeling of anticipation. Notice here also that progress is made. It said, so when he explained all these things to them, he sent them to Joppa. When God answers our prayers, we, we often don't get everything we're asking for all at once. Have you ever noticed that? 
I'm sure you have. I'm sure there's plenty of things you want to fast forward through in your prayers as I do. But a lot of times it's just a step. When God gives us those instructions, it's just one more step on the path. He doesn't fast forward us in time like a cartoon to the end. Frequently, God gives us a, a series of activities that he leads us through. But we see here when we pray, progress is made in our prayers. Jim Simbala writes, prayer begets revival, which begets more prayer. Prayer begets revival, which begets more prayer. But continuing on, starting in verse 9 in Acts chapter 10, the next day as they went on their journey and drew near the city, Peter went up on the housetop to pray about the sixth hour. Then he became very hungry and wanted to eat, but while they made ready, he fell into a trance and saw heaven open and an object like a great sheet bound at the four corners descending to him and let down to the earth. In it were all kinds of four-footed animals of the earth, wild beasts, creeping things, and birds of the air. And a voice came to him, Rise, Peter, kill and eat. But Peter said, Not so, Lord, for I have never eaten anything common or unclean. And a voice spoke to him again the second time, What God has cleansed you must not call common. This was done three times, and the object was taken up into heaven again. So we see the same pattern here. Peter's praying. God hears his prayers. God responds with an instruction, and progress is made. Look at verse 17. While Peter wondered within himself what this vision which he had seen meant, behold, the men who had been sent from Cornelius had made inquiry for Simon's house and stood before the gate. And they called and asked whether Simon, her surname was Peter, was lodging there. While Peter thought about the vision, the Spirit said to him, Behold, three men are seeking you. Arise, and therefore go down and go with them, doubting nothing, for I have sent them. So see, as many times as we want to say Peter gets it wrong, Peter got it right this time. He prayed and he listened. He's sitting there wondering. We need to be sitting and wondering, what does God have to say to me? And Peter gets his answer. So here in Acts chapter 10, we have two men praying. They don't know each other. They have no idea about the other person, but God knows both of them. And he answers both of them's prayers. One of the things that you may or may not be aware of is when Pastor Greg called one of the individuals who was involved in us getting this building that we're in here two years ago. So we celebrated last weekend uh, the church anniversary. It's also been about two years since we came into this building. As he called one of those men, he answered the phone and Pastor Greg told him who he was and why he was calling. And the man said, I was just sitting at my desk praying about what to do regarding that building because we have a meeting about it tonight. Coincidence? I don't think so. God knows where his children are, what they're doing, and if we'll follow his leading, he has everything orchestrated just perfectly. Look at what can happen as a result of two men praying. Verse 24, the following day they entered Caesarea. Now Cornelius was waiting for them, and he called together his relatives and close friends. As Peter was coming in, Cornelius met him and fell down at his feet and worshipped him. But Peter lifted him up, saying, Stand up, I myself am also a man. And as he talked with him, he went in and found many who had come together. So Cornelius, expecting Peter's arrival, he called his family and friends together. More progress, right? God's still working. But Peter's not even there yet, but he, when he gets there, he finds a whole congregation waiting. So Peter begins to share the gospel with the group. More progress. I'll point that out why here in a minute. While Peter was still speaking these words, the Holy Spirit fell upon all those who heard the word, and those of the circumcision who believed were astonished. As many as came with Peter, because the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out onto the Gentiles also. So notice here, the Spirit of God is so powerful that it can save us Gentile dogs. 
because that, that's what's big in this. This is not, it's not meant to be an exhaustive teaching of Acts chapter 10. There's so much more that I'm, that I'm not going to go into here. But one fact that we have to point out is that this is the first time the gospel had been taken to the Gentiles. Peter was just a, a little bit slow in fulfilling that command to take the gospel to the whole world. Go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. He who believes and is baptized will be saved. But he who does not believe will be condemned. Now Peter had been performing miracles amongst the Jews... But he hadn't made it too far. He'd been a little bit reluctant to go to the Gentiles. And by reluctant, I'm talking 10 years reluctant here. Talk about progress. He made a big leap of faith here and a lot of progress in just a few days. He went to the Gentiles, the people that they would normally have nothing to do with. He made huge progress in simply being willing to share the gospel with the Gentiles. So the question here is, where have you been reluctant in responding in God's prompting? Who is God prompting you to share the gospel with or share your faith with or reach out to? How does God want to lead you in seeing your prayers answered? Are you praying, but you're you're not making any progress because you're not recognizing where God's sending you? You're not listening for the instruction. Are you praying for revival in your own life, in your family, in your church, in this nation? If you want to know how God wants to use you in revival, pray. That means talk and listen. So we saw how prayer played a huge role in revival there because numerous people there got saved, a huge work of the Spirit. Next, we want to look at worship. Revival begins with God's people. It begins in the hearts and minds of Christians. Back to our verse, Second Chronicles, I want to read again. If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and heal their land. One of the ingredients for revival is worship. Charles Wesley, brother of John Wesley, the founder of the Methodist Church, wrote more than 6,000 hymns. Now, writing over 6,000 hymns of worship has to mean a lot of time with God, I would imagine. I've never written one, but I imagine there's a lot of time with God to come up with that many hymns. 6,000. When we place God in His rightful place in our lives, we can't help but to worship Him. Revelation chapter 5 records a worship scene, a rather famous one. Now, when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the Lamb, each having a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And then sang a new song, saying, You are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain and have redeemed us to God by your blood, out of every tribe and every tongue and people and nation, and have made us kings and priests to our God, and we shall reign on earth. Then I looked, and I heard the voice of many angels around the throne, the living creatures and the elders, and the number of them was ten thousand times ten thousand, and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing. And every creature which is in heaven and on the earth and under the earth, and such as are in the sea and all that are in them, I heard saying, Blessing and honor and glory and power be to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb forever and ever. Now, this scene is in Revelation, which is future. We haven't lived through Revelation yet. But Christ is no less worthy today than he is then. All the work that he's done has been done to redeem us. Christ sits on that very same throne in heaven today and is just as worthy to be worshipped today as he ever has been or ever will be. Again, quoting Jim Cimbala, the fact that we were created to enjoy God and to worship Him forever is etched upon our souls. That, not, that 
desire we have to know God and the desire to worship God are both etched in our souls. It's just part of who we are. But we often get distracted in our worship of God. We find it difficult to worship at times. Problem is, we often make worship about ourselves instead of about God. Jesus went on a mission trip to see a Samaritan woman at Jacob's well who was having this problem. You know the story, the woman at the well. A woman of Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. Then a woman of Samaria said to him, How is it that you, being a Jew, ask a drink from me, a Samaritan woman? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered and said to her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is who says to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. Where then do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob, who gave us the well and drank from it himself, as well as his sons and his livestock? Jesus answered and said to her, Whoever drinks of this water will thirst again, but whoever drinks of the water that I shall give him will never thirst. But the water that I shall give him will become in him a fountain of water springing up into everlasting life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water that I may not thirst, nor come here to draw. Jesus said to her, Go, call your husband and come here. The woman answered him and said, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, You have well said, I have no husband. For you have had five husbands, and the one whom you now have is not your husband. In that you spoke truly. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, and you Jews say that in Jerusalem is the place where we ought to worship. Jesus responded, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when you will neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We know what we worship, for salvation is of the Jews. But the hour is coming, and now is, when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such to worship Him. God is spirit, and those who worship Him must worship in spirit and truth. See, the Samaritan woman had become so caught up in where to worship when she should have been more concerned with who to worship. In fact, if this woman was worshiping anything, it was men in her lives is what we see. And Jesus knew that and was in a unique position knowing that to minister to her and bring that out. What gets in the way of worship for people today? What are the, some of the considerations that we put into where or how we should worship? Geography, as it was for the woman. She's worried about where to worship. Should it be a formal church building or a strip mall? Do we worship in a home study or meet in the park? Maybe it's the musical instruments that are involved. Is it an organ, guitars? Even there, we can debate acoustic or electric. Should drums play a part in the worship? What about the tempo? Some would say it has to be slow. Others would say upbeat. Keep me awake while we're worshiping. Traditional or contemporary? What about the affiliation of the church that you want to attend? Does it need to be denominational or non-denominational? Even within that, there's a variety of choices. What about the appropriate attire? Suit and tie or shorts? Dress or slacks? A big, pretty, colorful hat or none? What about the frequency? Sunday morning's enough, or should I go to Wednesday and also the Bible studies during the week? Why do we concern ourselves with all these extra-biblical concerns? These aren't really addressed in your Bible. The issue becomes our hearts. See, if we can wrap all of our concerns regarding religion up into a religious system, that we don't have to address the issues that are in our heart where God really wants to work. While we concern ourselves with developing and following a superficial religious system of worshiping God, our hearts grow cold and hard. 
But if we place God at the center of our lives and we worship God, regardless of where, how, when, we worship Him in spirit and in truth, all the other concerns will work themselves out. Or should I say that God will work them out for us? If we put Him in His rightful place, everything else doesn't just fall into place, as we often say, but God takes care of them. God said, if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven, will forgive their sin and heal their land. That is why Jesus was able to say, oh, my father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. That day there in the garden of Gethsemane, placed all those cares and concerns on God, trusted in God's ways. So worship is an important ingredient in the life of a Christian. Whether it's personal revival or or national revival, worship is always present in revival. Worship's a key ingredient. In fact, it's hard to imagine those large crowds without worship of God. I picture the the pictures of all the crowds of Calvary Chapel and Chuck Smith uh, baptizing there in the ocean in California and singing worship songs all day. So let's take a look at another ingredient in revival. Let me paint you a picture of a crusade. I want you to think of a Billy Graham crusade or a Greg Laurie Harvest crusade. All the organizing's been finished. The venue has been selected. Everything is set up. Prayers have been lifted up for years for most of these. Cases of Bibles have been placed over in the corner for all the new believers that are going to come forward. Thousands of people have been invited. The unbelievers are there. The backslidden Christians are there. The Christian is just simply feeling defeated and needs some new life breathed into them. They're all there. They've all gathered together. They've been bathed in prayer. The worship team comes out on stage and lead the masses in singing worship songs. They're glorifying. They're praising God. Then after the last song, the lead singer finishes playing. He looks out at the crowd and he says, thanks for coming. Have a good evening now. There's something missing here. Everyone walks off stage. It's time to go home. But there's, there's an important ingredient here missing that I think is obvious. God says, if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways. One of the important parts of revival is the Word of God. Without the Word of God, you're not going to have revival either. And I'm not claiming any one of these is more important, but that they are all necessary. From Romans... For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes, for the Jew first and also for the Greek. From James, therefore lay aside all filthiness and overflow of wickedness, and receive with meekness the implanted word, which is able to save your souls. From the psalmist in Psalm 19, the law of the Lord is perfect, converting the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. So where should we look to find out how important the Word of God is in revival? Well, we look to the Word of God, right? It speaks on itself. If we just look at Psalm 119, with verses within Psalm 119, verse 25 says, My soul clings to the dust. Revive me according to your word. Now, have you ever been brought so low, so beat down, so worthless that you'd have to dig a hole to get any deeper? You feel like you could just lay into the ground and melt away. and Nobody would notice. If we're honest, we often don't let God into our lives until things get that bad. We try to handle them ourselves, and this is where we find ourselves, in this place that we can't imagine being any lower. The psalmist, obviously being in this place at some point in time, says, revive me according to your word, Lord. 
God wants to revive his people according to his word. God wants to reconcile his people back to him, and he wants to restore the land. It's all recorded in his word. Verse 37 says, Turn away my eyes from looking at worthless things and revive me in your way. Some things we look at are just worthless. They have no value to a Christian. Some things we look at are destructive. We all recognize those. We, we, we're usually much quicker to acknowledge those. But some things are just worthless. They just don't have any benefit to the man of God. Some have a flesh, fleshly benefit only, but nothing eternal. Make it your prayer. Lord, take away our desire to look, desire to look upon these things. Revive us with a desire for things that are of you. Draw us to you. Verse 40 says, Behold, I long for your precepts. Revive me in your righteousness. A love for God's word is a prerequisite for revival. God can't revive us, can't breathe new life into us if we're not, not burying ourselves in his word, if we're not feeding on his word. Do you pray for God to give you a hunger for his word? Do you desire His Word? Can you go through a day without it? If you can, you should be praying for a desire. If you want to see God work in your life, you should start with praying for an unquenchable desire for the Word of God. Reading the Word of God always transforms lives. There is no exception to that. Those truths are there, and they're powerful. Verse 88 says, Revive me according to your loving kindness, so that I may keep the testimony of your mouth. We all want God to respond to us based on our merit, right? based on the works that we've done. We, we want God to judge us based on that. No. We want God to respond to us based on His love and kindness, based on His mercy, not our merits. The psalmist is declaring, God, have mercy on me. Revive me based on Your mercy so that I can be a witness of Your mercy and grace to others. The Word of God is full of mercy and grace. You can hardly read a chapter of the Bible without seeing examples of God's mercy and grace. Not because man deserved it, certainly not, can't even begin to make that argument, but because God loves man that much. Which is why the psalmist declares in verse 149, Hear my voice according to your loving kindness. O Lord, revive me according to your justice. Recall the definition of revival that I read earlier from the witnesses. They described revival as it pleased God to display his free and sovereign mercy in the conversion of a great multitude of souls in a short space of time. Revival involves God displaying His mercy and His grace. And where do we find God's mercy and grace? But outlined in His Word. Verse 154 says, Plead my cause and redeem me. Revive me according to Your Word. Verse 156, Greater Your tender mercies, O Lord. Revive me according to Your judgments. We will all face judgment at one time. The Bible, the Bible is very clear about that. The question is how we will be judged. That's up to us. We can be judged according to our works, or we can be judged in God's mercy according to the work of Jesus on the cross. That is God's plan, and it's available to anyone that will choose it. I want to be judged according to God's mercy and grace. That choice is ours. But we will all face judgment one day. In the parable of the sower, Jesus explains that parable to the disciples in this way. Says now, Jesus said, now, this, now the parable is this. The seed is the word of God. Those by the wayside are the ones who hear. Then the devil comes and takes away the word out of their hearts, lest they should believe and be saved. But the ones on the rock are those who, when they hear, receive the word with joy. And these have no root, who believe for a while and in time of temptation fall away. 
Now the ones that fell among thorns are those who, when they have heard, go out and are choked with cares, riches, and pleasures of life, and bring forth no fruit to maturity. But the ones that fell on the good ground are those who, having heard the word with a noble and good heart, keep it and bear fruit with patience. So God's word is full of light and truth, something that this world is in a great deal of need today. The world today is full of darkness and lies. That's easy to see. If we're to see revival in our families and our nation, it's going to require that we present the word of God. We are the messengers. We are the holders of the word of God. Kyle, I'm sure we'll talk about it more later, but he shared even this morning with sharing the, the love of God, sharing the word of God with people that didn't want to hear it on their missions trip. Some are anxious to hear it. Others aren't. But he shared it. He was obedient and he shared it. We're going to have to share the word of God if we want to see revival, whether it be in our families and ourselves. We're going to have to be honest with ourselves with the word of God. Or if we want to see it in this nation, we're going to have to boldly proclaim the word of God. John chapter 3, verse 30 says, He must increase, but I must decrease. That comes from studying the Word of God. Just in discussing revival this morning, notice how much of the Word of God I've read. I don't think I've ever spent this much time in one study reading from the Word of God. That's not an accident. The Word of God is all about revival. There are so many examples in our Bible that I had trouble picking which ones to share. We're not taking a deep look at any of these scriptures. Any of these scriptures I've read, we could spend a whole service on. But the point is to show you that it's all there in the Word of God. That's how important it is. Even this morning during our 8 o'clock prayer, notice on the front of your bulletin, if you have it, the scripture is printed there. At the bottom it says, Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. Psalm 119, 105. That's a verse I didn't even have even after going through Psalm 119, looking at the Word of God. That's how important the Word of God is here at Calvary Chapel. So when we pray, we enter into a dialogue with God. We've talked about that. We make our requests known to God. God hears our prayers and answers, and we receive direction in our lives. We begin to see progress in our lives and the lives of those around us when we pray. We talked about worship. When we worship God, we put God in His rightful place in our lives as the focal point. When we worship God, we worry less about the hows, the wheres, and the whens. We concern ourselves more with who. Less about how to worship, less about where to worship, less about when to worship, more about who we are worshiping. When we worship God, we allow Him to address the issues in our hearts. When we worship God, it becomes more about Him and less about us. We talked about God's Word. In God's Word, we find truth and we find light. When we surround ourselves with God's Word, we find mercy and grace. When God's Word is planted in our hearts, we begin to share faith hope, and love with those around us. There's one more ingredient for revival that we'll find in the verse we're looking at today. If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and heal their land. Revival involves men exchanging their own ways, the actions rooted in pride and their flesh, for God's way, which is love and mercy. There has to be a response to the Word of God in order for revival to happen. There has to be repentance. Jonah chapter 3 records a great example of revival. A great example of revival. When the Word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and preach it. Preach to it the message that I tell you. Jonah arose, went to Nineveh, according to the Word of the Lord. 
which was an exceedingly great city, a three-day journey in extent, and Jonah began to enter the city on the first day's walk. Then he cried out and said, Yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. So the people of Nineveh believed God, proclaimed a fast, and put on sackcloth from the greatest to the least of them. Then word came to the king of Nineveh, and he arose from his throne and laid aside his robe, covered himself with sackcloth and sat in ashes, and he caused it to be proclaimed and published throughout Nineveh by the decree of the king and his nobles. Let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Do not let them eat or drink water. But let man and beast be covered with sackcloth and cry mightily to God. Yes, let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. Who can tell if God will turn and relent and turn away from his fierce anger so that we may not perish? Now, as that started out, it said the second time, because we all know what happened the first time the word of the Lord came to Jonah, right? He ran the opposite direction. Got on a ship, found himself in a storm at sea. I mean, Jonah was so eager to get away from God, he was willing to take down the entire ship with him. But after three days, he cried out. I'm sorry, jumped ahead way. He got thrown overboard, basically sacrificed himself to save others. Thrown overboard, swallowed by a great fish, we're told, which we call a whale. We assume to be a whale. And was later vomited up onto the ocean, onto the dry land. Now, maybe it's just me, but I'm thinking he needs a new travel agent. He needs to find a better way to get somewhere. Much easier ways than this. So that's why we get to the second time that God's Word came to Jonah. See, before Jonah could be used to lead the Ninevites to repentance, Jonah had to repent. Everybody thinks in Jonah the story is the whale. That's what we all think of when we think of Jonah, right? First thing our mind jumps to is the whale. How did that happen? What did that look like? What, and that's important. We can look at that. But here's the big story in Jonah, repentance. Jonah hated the Ninevites with a passion. So much so, he even told God, I didn't want to witness to them because I knew you'd have mercy on them. That's a cold heart. But yet we're forced to ask the question, is our heart that way towards a group of people or an individual in our lives? We don't want to miss that story of Jonah. We don't want to find ourselves in that place in our lives. We don't want to find ourselves with cold, unrepentant hearts. We need to ask God to show us what He desires in our life. What direction do we need to change from and turn to? If you're running from God right now in any area of your life, it's important to ask, who are you willing to take down with you? Jonah was willing to take down a whole ship there for a time period. Are you willing to sacrifice your family because you're not willing to accept your God-given role as the husband and leader within your family, or support your husband as the wife that God has called you to be? Does your family take a second seat to something else? Are you too busy with those worthless pursuits that we talked about to spend time pouring into your family, leading them in prayer and worship and, and uh, the study of God's Word? Is there a person that God has shown you that needs to experience His love, mercy, and grace, but your heart is cold towards them? See, while you're busy running from God, your family's suffering. While you're trying to avoid God's calling in your life, people are dying in their sins. It's a reality we need to accept. While you're telling God to choose somebody else to help, your brothers and sisters are waging the battle. In fact, you may be the topic of their prayers. You, if you're running from God, you may be the one that, they're, you're, that they are interceding on behalf of and praying for revival to come to. You say that the problems are just too big for you to make a difference. Well, notice that Jonah entered into the work with less than a stellar presentation. 
Jonah went into this half-hearted would be generous, I believe. His entire message was, yet 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. That's all he said to him that we've got recorded here. I can assure you that's not a textbook presentation of the gospel. See, graciously, God has even worked through me with some of my most pathetic attempts to represent Him. Even when my heart wasn't right, God's mercy was poured out on the undeserving, myself included. God told Jeremiah, I will give them a heart to know me that I am the Lord, and they shall be my people, and I will be their God, for they shall return to me with their whole heart. So we need to consider our people, our families, and our nation today in the light of revival. What we see in our nation today are people professing to be Christians look more like the world than they do Jesus many times. Biblical truth is rare in our nation today. Even in our churches, it can be difficult to find a biblical truth shared. Many of our families are broken. There's numerous groups that exist attempting to redefine what a family is, in fact. We have groups organized to protect us from the influences of religion today. Most of these groups couldn't explain the difference between religion and Christianity. Christians are often more focused on what they disagree on than what they have in common. And worship, well, we can find people worshiping just about anyone and anything that they can to avoid acknowledging God. So is it just me, or is this country in prime for a revival? John chapter 4, Jesus said, Do not say there are still four months, and then comes the harvest. Behold, I say to you, lift up your eyes and look at the fields, for they are already white for harvest. And I believe that's where our nation stands today. I think that's where our people stand today. Think about the problems we see in America today. If we applied prayer to all the problems we have in this nation, how would they be affected? How would those problems change? If we began worshiping God and God only, how would those problems be influenced in our nation today? What would happen to those problems if we simply applied the Word of God to each one of those problems? And if people began to repent, to truly turn from their ways to God's ways, what would happen to the problems in America today? God promised, if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and heal their land. But how about if we put it this way? How about if we say, if you who are called Christians will worship me and pray and proclaim my word and repent, then I will hear from heaven and will forgive your sin and heal your nation. Can we make it personal? It's going to have to be if we're going to see a change. Revival is always personal. Revival begins in the church. Revival always begins in Christians first. Then it affects the communities, the towns, and the nations. We hope you have enjoyed today's study. For more information on teachings, events, worship times, and location, please visit our website, ccfwinstonsalem.com. From Pastor Greg and all of us at Calvary Chapel Fellowship, Thank you for listening and being part of our study through God's Word.